1: your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. The Kakadu Plum is
2: an Australian native superfood containing
1: 100 times more vitamin C
2: than oranges. So, why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at hypergig with details.
1: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And today we're going to talk about a topic that we've actually had quite a few requests for. Most recently, I had a request from a listener who came to see one of the live shows in Salt Lake. And I feel bad because I did not get her name, but she is a postal worker. And I had mentioned uh, women U.S. postal workers being on my short list of topics that I wanted to do during Q&A after that show. And she came up and introduced herself and she took a photo with me and she was super charming and sweet. So it made me want to cover this topic even more. So we're finally going to get to it. Uh, Women postal
0: workers in the United States Postal Service. The earliest reference to a female postal worker is in a periodical called The Postal Record from June 1896. So we should clarify, postal worker in the United States. There's an article in that issue about a woman named Lydia Hill, who was the first person in charge of the mail for Salem, Massachusetts in the late 17th century. So women have been part of the postal services from uh, the colonies all the way back to that time when those services in what became the United States were basically in their infancy. In part,
1: uh, the early involvement of women in getting the mail delivered really stemmed from a simple matter of logistics. Most mail at this point went through establishments like local general stores, which were often family owned and run. So it wouldn't be unusual for the ladies of the family to be part of the process. But even outside of handling actual parcels and letters, women were the ones taking care of post riders on their stops. And if a patriarch of a family business that also handled mail were to die and leave his wife a widow, she would often simply assume her late husband's duties to keep the family business going. And that included handling mail.
0: One such woman was Elizabeth Timothy. She's often touted as the first woman newspaper publisher and editor in the United States. And she stepped into that role when her husband, Lewis, passed away. Lewis Timothy had been encouraged in his publishing career by a young Benjamin Franklin. And his leadership role at the South Carolina Gazette was part of a six-year partnership with Franklin. But when Lewis died, there was a year remaining on that contract, and the couple's eldest son, Peter, was only 13, definitely not ready to take on the job, although he had been Lewis's apprentice. And so
1: Elizabeth stepped into her late husband's position in January of 1739. Franklin was amenable to this arrangement with the understanding that Elizabeth was filling in until Peter could realistically take over the job himself. And along with the editing and publishing, of course, came the work of handling letters and parcels. Peter did eventually take over the family printing business, but not until 1746 when he was 21.
0: As the Revolutionary War took hold of the colonies and many men were serving in the military, Their jobs, including male handling, were often assumed by women in the interim. We hear a lot about similar things happening in all of the other wars, basically. In particular, World War II and World War I. So we hear a lot about this happening in World War II and sometimes World War I, but we don't really hear about it as much during the American Revolutionary War, even though this happened basically in all of the wars where a lot of American men went to fight. And other men in other nations, too.
1: Yeah, that's not an uncommon thing. Uh, You know, when, when men go to war, the women step up and take over a lot of the, the jobs that need to be done. Uh, Other notable early U.S. Postal women included Mary Catherine Goddard, who was appointed Postmaster of Baltimore, Maryland in 1775. Like Elizabeth Timothy, uh, Goddard also had some other business credentials. She grew up the daughter of the New London, Connecticut Postmaster, who was also a physician. And Mary's brother, William, actually established the colonial postal system. But as he became busy with other tasks, the day to day of the postal work was largely handled by Mary and their mother, Sarah Updike Goddard.
0: Mary was so proficient in her work that giving her the official role of postmaster was a widely supported decision, and she was a really devoted worker. She took her duties and responsibilities so seriously that she would at times pay postal writers out of her own pocket when it was necessary, basically anything to keep the service running smoothly and ensuring that the people that she served continued to receive all of their correspondence. And eventually
1: though, uh, Mary Catherine Goddard was ordered to resign from her post by Postmaster General Samuel Osgood. That order was issued in 1789 in anticipation of Baltimore becoming the regional headquarters for the Postal Service. Osgood's opinion was that the travel and workload that the post would demand as a consequence of this expanded role was simply going to be too much for a woman to handle, and he appointed one of his buddies to the job. Goddard actually fought her dismissal on the basis that her work had been impeccable, which everyone agreed with, and her post office was, quote, the most punctual and regular of any upon the continent. Unfortunately, despite a huge support from the community, her appeals never resulted in reinstatement. Her petition to Postmaster General Osgood, though, is now a part of the National Archives.
0: The first woman to be appointed as a postmaster under the United States Constitution was Sarah Moore Delano Decrow, and that was a position she was appointed to in 1792. Her post office was in Hertford, North Carolina, and while she held a prominent position, she really wasn't happy with her pay. In 1793, she wrote to the U.S. Postmaster General Timothy Pickering, threatening to resign over it. But his assistant's response was that uh, she was receiving the highest compensation allowed to any of the postmaster's deputies. While she didn't get the raise that she wanted, she decided to stay in the job, and she was the postmaster until she died in early 1795.
1: Yeah, Sarah DeCrow is actually a pretty interesting topic, and she may end up being an episode all on her own. And despite the fact that there were women doing perfectly good work in the fledgling postal service in the 1700s, by the 1800s, it had actually become forbidden for women to serve as post office clerks. And if a man were to appoint a woman to such a job... Uh, he would be fired from the Postal Service as well. Just the same, in plenty of establishments like the general stores and printing shops that we've been talking about since the beginning of this episode, women were still handling the mail. They just didn't have any official title attached to the work that they were doing.
0: By the 1830s, however, there were instances of the Post Office Department approving cases of widows stepping into their deceased husband's mail jobs as the quickest means to basically keep everything running smoothly. But because President Andrew Jackson made Postmaster General a position in the presidential cabinet, it cemented the push out of women from the work for a while. Post office jobs were often traded for political favors. And since women weren't part of the political process, they simply weren't in the running for the work.
1: And that actually went on for a few decades until the U.S. found itself at war internally. But before we get into that, let's pause for just a
0: moment for a word from one of our sponsors.
1: privileges and start earning points toward your next day. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true.
3: Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry.
0: This has been the case repeatedly in history. Wartime shifts the job landscape, and the U.S. Civil War was no exception. As many of the nation's men went to battle, jobs in the Postal Service were left vacant, so women were temporarily hired into post office positions for the duration of the war. And the women that
1: stepped into those positions were really good at their work. So much so that when the war was over, Postmaster General Montgomery Blair praised that work, saying that the women employees were, quote, more faithful in the performance of their duties than the men.
0: This really opened the doors again to postal work for women. The Dead Letter Office in particular became staffed by significantly more women than men by 1865. But even though they were there and doing fantastic work, they were being paid far less than men for the same job. Women earned, on average, across various postal positions, $400 to $700 a year, an estimated 35% less than their male counterparts.
1: This was not really a case, though, of apples-to-apples apples work comparison, either. Uh, often, the women were taking on greater responsibility than the men who were being paid more. For example, in the dead letter office, the men were often opening the letters, but the women were the ones that were trying to piece together information and do the detective work to ensure those letters got to their intended recipients.
0: While we may think of wage disparity as a social issue that only came to light in the mid-20th century, this pay gap was being discussed openly in the late 1860s. The New York Times addressed it in a printed letter to the editor on February 13, 1869, titled Women as Government Clerks.
1: And this editorial opens with, quote, Whatever arguments may be urged with more or less force against the theory of women's political equality with man, very few persons deny the justice of the principle that equal work should command equal pay without regard to the sex of the laborer. But it is one thing to acknowledge the right of a principle and quite another to practice it.
0: This article goes on to discuss the various branches of government and how women are positioned in each But when it gets to the Postal Service, it addresses why men are given the job of opening the mail. Quote, the
1: Post Office Department employs 50 women in the dead letter office in redirecting the letters, which are first opened by men who for this merely mechanical work receive salaries of the first and some even of the second grade. The letters must be opened by men because, as is said, immoral things are sometimes found. To see these things would, it is supposed, corrupt the morals of women. Uh, It is not argued, I believe, that man is stronger morally than woman, but rather that in doing this work, he will be injured less than her because he has less moral sentiment to be corrupted. Or in other words, the less strength persons have, the less they are in danger of falling.
0: This still is a theme that exists. That, (laughs) like, women somehow need to be protected by official policy. (laughs) Yeah. So... This passage is followed up with a note on the position of one of the Postmaster General's assistants, who went on record as saying he believed that mature or elderly women were able to safely open any item and deal with the cor- the contents without demoralization and, quote, with perfect propriety. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that sort of cracks me up. I just, uh, you know, uh, it's hilarious. In 1866, the U.S. Congress issued the official postal laws and regulations, and in them women in postal work are acknowledged by the government for the first time on record, though it's not really in the best way. These regulations actually stipulated that minors and married women were excluded by law from holding a position as postmaster as they could not legally execute an official bond.
0: These rules did change a few years later. In 1873, the regulations updated to say that married women could hold the position of postmaster and that bonds executed by them would be valid. That same year, there was a federal law enacted that gave government managers the power to appoint women as clerks at equal pay to men. But that didn't magically change things. The law wasn't enforced, and even three years later, women were still earning approximately 25% less than men holding the same postal jobs. And as the suffragette
1: movement became more vocal about this disparity in pay and opportunities for women, there was still really strong opposition. There was still a strong belief within the postal system that while women were capable of working in large cities where they had lots of supervision, they wouldn't be able to handle more rural postmaster positions because they wouldn't be able to handle leadership jobs without male superiors on hand.
0: So while women were still struggling to get even footing in the job side of the postal system, women were using the postal system more and more as correspondence became more fashionable than ever. But even as customers, there there was serious segregation in the works when it came to the design of post offices with separate counters for women and men in some cities. There were plenty of people
1: within the post office who felt that women postmasters were disruptive to society. Women who worked for a living were seen as less likely to marry, thus preventing some lucky gent from starting a family. And there were assertions that male clerks complained less and worked harder. In
0: 1902, Postmaster General Henry C. Payne made it clear that he felt that women should be supported by their husbands and should stay home and take care of their households, and went so far as to issue a statement that if a woman who was already working for the post office were to marry, she would no longer be a postal worker. Some women employees of the USPS were required to submit formal letters stating their marital status and the details of their husband's work if they were married.
1: But there were proponents of women postal workers within the system. Uh, in 1906, Postmaster General George Cordelou was open in his belief that women were perfectly suited for postal work, as it gave them an opening into government work while also offering the chance to stay close to and involved with their communities. And at this point in the timeline, women held about 10 percent of the government's postmaster positions.
0: Thanks to a shortage of city mail carriers in 1917, after a large number of men quit their carrying jobs due to pay and labor condition disputes. Women got a new opportunity to work, not just as clerks, but as regular city route workers. Of course, there were doubters who thought that women couldn't handle the job and that merely carrying a mailbag around would be too much for them. Two women were hired for temporary positions on city routes.
1: Yeah, there was uh, one piece I was reading about it that was pointing out that women had been carrying around babies that wiggle, in addition to being heavy for a long time, and that maybe mailbags would not be such a problem. Uh, and then World War I once again saw a bump in the number of women employed in the Postal Service as many men went to war, although this was largely temporary. Uh, many of those those women had been married to the men that left, and most of the women who had filled vacant positions left those jobs to make them available once again for returning soldiers.
0: 1921 saw a major change when Will Hayes became Postmaster General. He removed the ban on married women in the Postal Service that Harry C. Payne had instituted almost two decades earlier. And when World War II came around, women once again became the focus of Postal Service
1: discussion, as jobs needed to be filled. But the Postmaster General at that time, Frank Walker, still felt that women could work as clerks, but that they should not carry the mail. He had to reverse his position, though, as more and more of the men in his Postal Service left to serve in the military, and he really had no other option.
0: Coming up, we're going to talk about the postal uniforms and other moves toward workpla- workforce equality, as well as some notable ladies in postal service history. But first, we'll pause for a word from one of our sponsors.
3: Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're gonna talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're gonna go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're gonna be talking with some of my best friends. My I didn't sister. know we were going to go gonna go there on this. <laughs> to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Dvlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first take, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, Listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app,
1: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. After World War II, the number of women working in the U.S. Postal Service increased from year to year, though there were still very few women employed as mail carriers. And they were still a small enough segment of the U.S. Postal Service that there had never been a standardized uniform for them.
0: Skirts were added to the official uniform in 1955, but it took another full decade before a woman's uniform standard was established. Finally, in the 1960s, there were enough women in the USPS to merit this move. In 1962, President John F. Kennedy passed the Equal
1: Pay Act, legally establishing the right to equal pay for women and men in federal
0: jobs. From 1964 to 1974, women went from making up 8% of the Postal Service's employees to more than 18%, and the largest area of growth was as mail carriers. In the mid-1970s,
1: Postmaster General E.T. Found the founded the Postal Service Women's Program to identify women who would make good leaders and then offer training to enable more women to move into higher levels of employment within the Postal Service. However, it should be noted that while that program certainly helped some women, Mary Valentino, who was the woman who was really pivotal in designing that program, was unhappy with its execution, and she really felt that there were some institutional Issues of discrimination within the postal service and she filed a class action suit against the US Postal Service for discrimination. That suit was ultimately unsuccessful.
0: We're going to talk next about some of the notable women in USPS history, which will also, you know, fill us in for what's happened between the 1970s and today.
1: And while we mentioned earlier that women mail carriers were virtually non-existent for a long time, there were some exceptions. And there are so many notable women in the U.S. Postal Service history uh, and even before it was the U.S. Postal Service that we can't possibly include them all. So hopefully we're not missing your favorites.
0: The first woman given an official mail carrying post was actually back in 1845 per an appointment by Postmaster General Cave Johnson. This woman, Sarah Black, carried mail back and forth between the Charlestown, Maryland, post office and the railroad, daily or as required. And she was paid $48 a year.
1: And We know she did that job for at least two years. We don't know if it went much longer than that. Uh, Polly Martin was a star route carrier. That's a contract worker who carried mail, parcels, telegrams and even passengers between Attleboro and South Attleboro, Massachusetts, for 16 years, starting in eighteen sixty. She was known to be tough and smart and only faced one attempted robbery in all her time as a star carrier. That attempt failed miserably as she beat the man who had tried to climb aboard her wagon with a horsewhip
0: until he fell away. In 1900, the first woman full-time rural free delivery carrier was Ethel Hill. Whereas in previous years, women were sometimes listed as substitute carriers for their spouses or other male family members, Hill was the first to list a man, her father, as her substitute. Up until that point, there had been women working in the rural routes, but they were all basically serving as substitutes. Uh, Stagecoach
1: Mary, who we mentioned in our six impossible episodes podcast, was a former slave who ran mail in Montana between Cascade and St. Peter's Mission. And her reputation was that
0: of a rough, tough woman who was also much beloved. Miss Etta Nelson ran a mail route in Pittsfield, Maine by a horse and buggy from 1903 to 1907. She won the distinction of most efficient mail carrier in the state in 1907, shortly before she retired from her position to get married. Catherine Stinson
1: was the first woman to carry mail by plane. And in 1913, she dropped mailbags from the air at the Montana State Fair as part of a demonstration. She also flew regular airmail at one point from Chicago to New York. Again, the first woman to do so. And that was in 1918. And that trip actually didn't go as planned. She had to land earlier than she meant to. And it ended in something of a disastrous crash for her plane. She landed in a muddy field and her plane flipped over. Uh, Stinson was unharmed, and she did deliver that the mail that was on that thing a few days later. Uh, but she broke two American flight records in the process, even though uh, that flight did not go as planned. She had still gone further than anyone had gone before and flown longer than anyone had gone before.
0: The two women we mentioned earlier who were appointed to temporary positions as the first city mail carriers were Mrs. Parmelia S. Campbell and Mrs. Nellie M. McGrath. Campbell was a widow, and McGrath's husband was serving in the military. Although they weren't used for more than a couple of weeks, their work was deemed highly satisfactory.
1: Yeah, and that was in 1917. And then in 1920, Genevieve Baskfield was made the Zambroda, Minnesota, village carrier. Postal work was in her blood. Her father was actually the local postmaster. And when her father left office in 1924, Genevieve resigned her position.
0: In 1963, Mrs. Evelyn Craig Brown became the first woman to deliver mail in Washington, D.C. since World War II. In 1985,
1: Jackie Strange was the first woman to rise to the position of Deputy Postmaster General, the number two position in the U.S. Postal Service. She started her postal career as a temporary clerk in 1946, and she slowly made her way up the ladder over the course of the next 40 years. She retired in 1987.
0: Just a little more than a year ago, on March 6, 2015, the first female Postmaster General of the United States, uh, Megan Brennan, was sworn in. uh, Brennan has worked for the Postal Service for 30 years and started as a mail carrier, a job long believed to be too strenuous for women. My hat is off to all of
1: these gals. I have a female postal carrier, and I love her.
0: I have to confess... I am not sure who our carrier <laughs> is. Uh, This is because we live upstairs, and I don't think I ever see the mail being delivered.
1: I do. Plus, she'll always, you know, if there's a, a parcel, she will always come and knock on the door. And if it's raining, she will always... Uh, Put it in a bag and make sure it's tucked up on our, our deck or she'll knock on the door. If I'm, if she sees the car in the driveway, she knows I'm probably teleworking and she'll come and say hi and drop off the mail in a bag so it doesn't get wet. She's the best. Nice. I love, I love her. (laughs) I also have a little bit of listener mail, which is related to this. And it is one of the, the many requests sort of that we've gotten, but it's also a very funny story. I'm not going to read her whole mail, but I will read the, uh, the part that is germane to this, this topic. And it is from our listener Meredith. And she said, Uh, Hello, I love your podcast, and that now I must seem like a jack-of-all-trades to people because of the random historical events that I bring up in conversations. Recently, there was a listener mail uh, that mentioned that you should do a podcast on females becoming mail carriers. This made me think of one of my favorite stories about my daughter, Maddie. When she was four, we got a new female mail carrier. The old one, she puts that in quotes, was also a female. One day while we were walking, she saw a very tall black man delivering mail. And she kind of looked at him funny. And I thought, oh, no, she is looking at him because of his race. And I asked her why she was making that puzzled face. And she said, I didn't know men could do that job. She is (laughs) is seven now and she still doesn't know why this story is funny. I love this so much. It's like such a great uh, out-of-the-mouth-of-babes moment that I wanted to include it in this one. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also at Facebook.com slash history, On Twitter at history, At Pinterest.com slash history, At MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. And on Instagram at History. If you would like to learn more about what we talked about today, you can go to our parent site, HowStuffWorks. Type in USPS in the search bar, and you will get an article called How the USPS Works, so you can learn all about how the post office works. Uh, if you'd like to visit us, you should do that at mistinhistory.com, and there you will find show notes for all of the episodes Tracy and I have worked on, as well as every episode of Mist in History that has ever existed from the very beginning, long before we were hosts. So we encourage you, come and visit us at HowStuffWorks.com and mistinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. I am the ferryman. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts,
2: or wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God.